Jovi talked to me, I think about a month ago now and asked me to share um, on Sabbath and this like this concept of of biblical Sabbath and um, and what it, yeah, I asked Jovan, I said like, do you want me to talk more about like the biblical argument or precedence for Sabbath? Do you want me to talk about like my own personal life and what, you know, how we've integrated Sabbath into our life or what are you, what are you thinking? And, and he kind of said, I think what he said was you could just do either. And so um, I actually started out, um, yeah, I started out kind of doing more of like the technical side, uh, like I like Joby said, like an Old Testament professor at Eternity Bible College where uh, Mary Beth works. And so that's kind of my whole world. Um, and when I was when I was doing that more technical side, like this is what the Bible says about Sabbath, um, I realized that I have known that. Um, I've known those facts, those verses. I've known about God's heart for the Sabbath, and I've had some thoughts and conclusions about what that meant for us as believers for a long time, um, probably for more than, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years, something like that. But only the last five years or so of my life have I actually cared, um, and has it actually influenced my life. Um, and so what I want to do tonight is I want... To, we're going to read uh, three passages, and they're fairly long passages. I think you've already read one of them um, from the Ten Commandments from Exodus. Is that true, Jovi? Yes? Okay. Um, so we're going to read three passages, and I'm not necessarily going to um, going to like exegete each one or like go verse by verse. You would, you would not want to do that because you're going to see that there's a lot of verses. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to read each one of these passages. And before we read it, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. So like where we are in the biblical story, what's going on, what, what's happening when this is being said. And then we're just going to move to the next one. We're going to do that with three passages. Um, and then we're going to pray. And we're just going to spend, uh, I'll pray for us. We'll spend a couple minutes just praying that God would, um, that he would challenge us and that he would change us and that our lives would be uh, shaped by the story that we're a part of. Uh, the story of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and Jesus, and the church, and here we are today living in Southern California. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I don't know if this introduction is all necessary or anything. It's just, it's going to be a little bit different um, uh, in that I'm not like going verse by verse through something, but I want these verses to kind of frame our mindset. So as you hear me in the second half of this kind of share my heart and my history and my story, um, I want these verses that we're going to read to be kind of the, the outer frame, the picture frame, if you will, of everything that we're talking about. Does that make sense? I can't read any body language like this, so I need some light. Yeah, even if you're just listening to music and you're kind of going like this, it makes me feel like maybe you're jiving with what I'm saying. That's good. There we go, Matt. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to need three readers. Jared already said he'd be one of them, right? Can I get two more right now? Uh, just raise your hand and let me know you're willing to read. And if you're not, that's okay. Okay, Jovan will read one and then one more. Whoever raises their hand next will get the shortest one. Perfect, Jessica. Nailed it. So, Jovan, could you actually read the Exodus 28 through 11? Uh, Jared, uh, you'll read Ezekiel 10 or Ezekiel 20, 10 through 24. And then, Jovo, uh, sorry, and then Jessica, you could read uh, Mark 2, 23 through 28. I lied, Jessica. I gave you the second longest one, but it's still not that long. Um, so 
Uh, before we read Jovan's verse, um, I want to just give you a little bit of context for where we're at. Um, you guys, I, it's hard when, you know, I haven't been a part of the church or anything like that, so I don't necessarily know what you know and what you don't know. But the, the short version of the story is that in the beginning, God creates everything, and he creates it good, he creates it beautiful, he creates it whole, he creates mankind to be in the garden, and then mankind rebels. And mankind is separated from God. And mankind, one of the curses of mankind is that they are going to have to work the ground, that their lives are not going to be easy any longer. And the story progresses, and God calls Abraham out of uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, which you don't need to know that. And God promises that he's going to create this family with Abraham, and that more or less this family is going to represent God to the nations, that it's the responsibility of these people in this lineage, lineage to be God's representation to the rest of the world. And this family, um, you know the story, they become slaves in Egypt, and there's a horrible oppressor called the Pharaoh who is oppressing them and trying to kill them and almost commits genocide with them. And then their God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they cry out to him and he rescues them out of Egypt. And he takes them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. You've probably seen Prince of Egypt. You remember these little stories. And they come to the bottom of this mountain. And they're at the bottom of the mountain where Moses goes up on the mountain and he's receiving from God. Um, you know, sometimes the Ten Commandments, we start to think about it, it's like, here's 10 rules and the things you should do so you don't go to hell. But that's not what was happening. It's these, it's, this is what it looks like for you to be God's people. Not so that you do right and wrong, but this is what it looks like for you to reflect God's character to the nations and to the world. And so Moses goes up on the mountain. He receives um, the entire law or parts of the law, and he comes down. And one of the parts of the law that he reads is what Jovan's going to read for us right now. So go for it, Jovi. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. It says, Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, is a Sabbath to Yahweh, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Thank you. So this idea, and I, I don't know if you guys talked about this before, but, um, you know, whenever you're reading the Bible, you're always looking for these uh, therefore or for type statements. Like, okay, so what is all of this for? And just a, a little comment before we move on, that the purpose, the reason that Israel is supposed to Sabbath is not, hey, so you can follow rules so you can be right with me. You Sabbath, you rest, you only work six days because Yahweh, your perfect creator God, created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Sabbathing, resting, regular rhythms are not, um, they're not necessarily like, here's what I need to do for Israel. Here's what I need to do so God doesn't get mad. It is, this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to reflect God's image. And, you know, I think uh, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but our American culture does have this concept that rest and vacation and, you know, just laying back, kicking your feet up, that that's lazy. But in Genesis 1 and 2, that's God. That's the creator God that you follow. This is a creator God who six days labors and on the seventh day does nothing. 
absolutely just rests and and enjoys the creation that he's a part of. So that's that's the purpose. That's why we're doing this. It's not hey, so you. Um, it's not just so you can trust me. It's just not just so that you can obey me because I want to see if you can do this whole thing. It is this is part of what it means to reflect God's image into the world. Part of what it means for Israel at Mount Sinai is to rest on the seventh day. So the story progresses and Israel grows and they get a king called David. And then David has sons called Solomon or called Solomon he has a bunch of sons. And then Solomon has a son and the nation splits. And there's the, the, the nation of Israel becomes like this big, um, I wouldn't call them a world power, but they are a well-known nation within the ancient Near East. People know who Israel is. There's people traveling from as far nor north in the known world and as far south in the known world to come and see who this nation of Israel is. But then um, towards um, the middle of the book of Kings, um, in 1 Kings 25 to be exact, sometime around there, you've got a prophet and his name's Ezekiel. And this prophet is coming to Israel and he's saying, Israel, you need to understand why exile is coming. You need to understand what has gone wrong with you and your people. And, and these are some of the reasons that God is going to take you out of the land. This is some of the reasons that hundreds and thousands of people are going to die, that you will not have a home anymore, that you will live in Babylon, that Assyria and Babylon will destroy your towns and cities. Let me tell you part of the reason why that this is happening. And so this is the prophet Ezekiel um, kind of starting to explain that to the people of Israel. And he starts with an example of the time of the book of Numbers when they left Egypt and when a bunch of people died. And this is Yahweh explaining to Ezekiel, to the or through Ezekiel to the Israelites, here's why you will be exiled. This is why God is going to bring judgment on you. So Jared, read for us Ezekiel 20, 10 through 24. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. And I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am Yahweh your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy, that they might be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. 
Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Thank you. Yeah, uh, one of the things that, um, that, I, that I hadn't thought about um, until I started to try and study this more, um, you know, I, I think if I were to ask the average Christian, you know, maybe some, the average Christian who knows that Israel was exiled, so maybe you've read the Old Testament a couple of times, and I asked you the question, so why was Israel exiled? Like, what was the issue? Uh, what, what was the thing that they were kicked out of the land for? In what way did they violate their relationship with God? Most people, um, in my experience, would say something like, well, idolatry. They worshiped other gods. They were, um, you know, they were, you know, sexual immorality or something like that. But what we don't realize is that a big part of them needing to leave the land and not be present in the land was because they did not practice Sabbath. That, and this goes all the way back to what, we, what I mentioned in Genesis 1, that part of what it means in Old Testament theology, at least, part of what it means to reflect God's image is to Sabbath. And when your people are called for the express purpose to be God's representatives on earth, and you do not represent him in the way that he has asked you to represent him, you're going to get kicked out of the land. And I'm not saying the Sabbath is the only reason. There's a bunch of other reasons that they get kicked out of the land. There's a lot of injustice. There's unjust scales. There's intermarriage. There's sexual immorality. There's idolatry. There's all these other things. But I don't think most of us realize that Sabbath is one of them. And that explicitly not Sabbathing, profaning the Sabbath, making the Sabbath like every other day of the week is something that God really does care about. And again, it's not a rule. Did you break it or not? It is this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to reflect God's image, and you're not doing that. All right. Story progresses. As you know, Israel gets kicked out of the land. Um, they get scattered abroad. Some of them end up coming back, but not all of them. And then um, the book of Luke opens the Gospels with Jesus announcing that the year of Sabbath, the year of Jubilee, is here. And that Jesus is going to pronounce jubilee, freedom, um, freedom to the captives. The blind will see, the deaf will hear. That's in Luke chapter 4. And in Mark's account, early on in Jesus' life, he tells this story about Pharisees, about religious leaders getting angry at him that he's not practicing Sabbath the way that they would have wanted him or the way that they thought that the Sabbath should be practiced. So Jessica, I'm going to have you read that. It's uh, Mark 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, and in the time of Abiathar, the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, 
not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We can't hear you. Thank you. Sorry, I messed my iPad up. And I was trying to fix it while you're reading, but I got nervous because I could tell you're getting to the end of the verse and then I messed it up again. You know, that's how it goes sometimes. All right. So thank you. Um, one of the, 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 the line that we're going to talk about later is Jesus's line that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what I want to do right now is we just read the Ten Commandments, or we read one of them. Uh, we read uh, a story from Ezekiel or a prophecy from Ezekiel explaining to Israel why destruction is coming to them. And remember that it was in that passage, it was because they did not obey Yahweh and they profaned, they did not practice Sabbath. And then here, there's this confrontation between the religious leaders and Jesus about the Sabbath and Jesus saying, I'll just use my own words, Y'all don't get it. That's not what Sabbath is. Sabbath is for the people. Sabbath is for the people of God. The people of God are not for the Sabbath, which we'll talk a little bit about in a second. But before we do, I want to pray. And like I said, um, we're probably not going to read a ton more after that. These verses and these passages are just supposed to frame the next little part of our conversation. So let me pray. Jesus, um, I pray that we would learn more and more what it means that you, the Son of Man, our Lord, our King, our Master, our Ruler of the Sabbath. What does it mean for us as Christians living in the United States in 2020 that you are the King of the Sabbath? What does it mean for us that you that part of your revealed character in the first pages of scripture are that you rest. You rest on the seventh day. I pray that you would challenge us all. I pray that you would, um, yeah, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that you would, that you would speak to us individually and um, in our families and corporately as a church. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, yeah, so I want to tell you guys just a little bit about my story. Um, I didn't grow up in a Sabbathing church. I did grow up as a believer for the most part. I don't know what that means. I grew up going to church and, um, my church didn't practice Sabbath or anything like that. In fact, I remember when I was in seminary, I interviewed the pastor of the church that I grew up in and he explicitly told me, like, he said, I don't practice Sabbath because it's not commanded in the new Testament. And it just seems like a lot to me. And so I, I wouldn't say that I was like anti-Sabbath or that Sabbath people are bad or anything like that, but it just wasn't something that was talked about in my Christian upbringing when I was growing up in the church and when I was being taught Bible stories and stuff like that. It is interesting, though, that I was taught the Ten Commandments. I remember learning the Ten Commandments. I remember learning songs about the Ten Commandments. I remember learning that because of the Ten Commandments, little Ernie, you should not kill people. You should honor your parents. You shouldn't say bad words. Or if you do, you should say, gosh darn it, because that's better than saying, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain or something. And so this tradition that I grew up in, which is regular, plain old vanilla evangelical Christianity, nothing special, we grew up and it is as if we believed that 
there were some parts of the Old Testament, some parts of the Ten Commandments that apparently meant a lot. Some things that I should memorize and I should do as memory verses that I should learn a song about, but that the whole Sabbath thing didn't mean anything to me. Does that kind of make sense? Track in? Yes? Good. And, you know, kind of reflecting on my pastor um, from when I grew up, I realized that there is this, uh, this stream of Christianity that some, for some reason we believe that the only things that we're supposed to do, the only things that actually change the way that we live, the way that we think in scripture are like the commands, the imperatives, the do this or don't do this, right? And then what, what's really funny about that is that even if you believe that, the Ten Commandments says explicitly to practice the Sabbath, and then we still think, ah, but not, not right now, because that was a long time ago, and, you know, I'm under grace, not under the law, and you do the amen or whatever. Whatever you end up doing, you convince yourself somehow that, okay, maybe I don't need to obey this type of thing. Now, what happened to me as an individual and as my family is we... Like I said, I grew up that way. My wife grew up that way. We didn't necessarily practice Sabbath. It wasn't a regular rhythm of ours at all. And then about four or five years ago, maybe six years ago now, uh, we burned out. We, we got, and I'm only 31. You're not supposed to burn out until you're at least Jared's age. But we burnt out. And at that time, I was working five to six jobs. Um, most of them were great jobs. They were good people. I was trying to do really good things. I was going to grad school, which apparently is a good thing to do. Uh, I was only getting paid for two of my six jobs, so that wasn't smart, but I was still, I was trying to, um, there were jobs here in this community, like trying to help with community developments, help people get businesses started and stuff like that. Um, I was, like I said, I was going to school. We had two little kids. I was married. And what ended up happening is that my wife and I basically didn't talk to each other for about six months, honestly. And not because we were mad at each other, but because there was no time for us to talk. And, and so we would start fights, we'd start arguments, and we would just never work them out. And all of that like pent up frustration got to a point where we basically just snapped. Not like I didn't go crazy or anything like that. I don't think I did, maybe I didn't. But we got to a point where we just felt done. Um, and I don't, you know, I've tried to explain this in a more eloquent way, but that's where we were. We were just done. I didn't want to do anything. I was done with my friendships. I was done with my ministry stuff. I was ready to drop out of school. I was done with being married. I was done with being a father. I was done. I was done with all of it. And not like, I don't love my wife anymore. I don't love my kids or I don't like going. It wasn't any of that. It was that I had gotten to this point where I had overloaded myself so much that I just, everything got depleted. And maybe if I had health insurance, I would have found out that my adrenal glands were all, you know, depleted or something, but I didn't. So I, I don't really know what happened other than I was just done. And at the same time that all of this is happening, I'm teaching classes at Eternity Bible College. I'm teaching Old Testament classes. And so um, I'm very familiar with this concept of Sabbath. And a friend of mine, um, who you guys might meet or have met, Chris Hayes, a pastor at Cornerstone, he asked me, he said, hey, Ernesto, do you think that what you're experiencing in your life could be a result of you and your family profaning or violating the Sabbath? And I, I honestly just never thought about this before. I had never thought about 
that command, like that huge theme in scripture, something that I know super well, because I'm an Old Testament professor. I went to six years of school for this thing. Like I know about Sabbath and I never really considered if what was happening in my life was a result of something that I knew really, really well. And so for that next year, um, obviously the one thing that I couldn't stop doing is I couldn't just stop working. Um, and so I'm still teaching Old Testament at Eternity. And I just started paying a lot of attention to all these passages and realized that the entire Old Testament is really, really concerned with the idea and the concept and the rhythm of Sabbath. Even the number of years, the number of years that Israel goes into exile has to do with the Sabbath year. The number of years from the exile date 586 BC to when Jesus comes on the scene in around three or zero or plus three AD, whatever one you want to do, it's about the cycle of Sabbath years. This whole thing is about the cycle of Sabbath years. And I'm not trying to get all weird numberology, like add these together. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that there is something significant that I never noticed that on the seventh day, Yahweh rests. And that you humans are Yahweh's image bearers. That is your primary calling, that who you are, according to the scriptures, before anything else, you reflect God's image. And this God rests on a regular. And so I imagine that for a lot of you, um, you have a similar experience to mine in that you, unless you grew up in a Jewish household, uh, a practicing Orthodox Jewish household, or maybe if you grew up in some version of Mormonism that does this too, um, you probably haven't practiced regular Sabbath. Um, you've probably thought that it's something that, I don't know, that's kind of weird, seems lazy, or, or what most of us do is you practice a weird American version of Sabbath because that's called the weekend, right? And so you just don't do anything, and then you feel bad on Sunday night, you try and cram a bunch of work in, and then you start over on Monday. And so what I want to do is I want to share kind of just two big principles that for me and my family, um, considering that verse from Exodus from the Ten Commandments, the warning from Ezekiel and Jesus's response to the Pharisees, these are two things that that have really stood out to me over the last five years as we've tried to practice and intentionally um, think about Sabbath in our lives. And the first one is something that, um, honestly, this is just an argument and a conversation that I've had a bunch of times, and I don't know if any of you are there, but we're going to have it anyways. And luckily, you're all muted, so we're not going to argue. I'm just going to tell you. Um, and that's this idea of this concept. Anybody who's been a believer for a while and a believer who's not practicing Sabbath for a while, in the back of your head somewhere, you are thinking it's not commanded in the New Testament for us to practice Sabbath. So Ernesto, that's cool. I'm glad you're into it. Sounds like you overworked your family. Sounds like you almost ruined your marriage. I'm really sorry about that. But Ernesto, Sabbath is not commanded in the New Testament. And therefore, I have no need to practice Sabbath myself. I don't know if you're thinking that. Uh, let's just pretend that someone is going to watch the video later. None of you guys, but somebody else later. They're probably thinking it, right? And honestly... <sighs> I think this is exactly how I used to think. In practice, this is how I used to think. I knew about Sabbath, but I didn't practice it. I don't think I ever verbalized it that way, but I do think that's how I used to think about the Sabbath. But here's the thing. 
somehow in our current version of Christianity here in the United States, we've done two really weird things that I think ultimately hurt us as a church. And I can tell you that these things, um, they are unique to Western Americanized Christianity. I spent a lot of time um, within the Latino church and the Mexican church. I just tell you, this isn't as much of an issue in those realms, in Mexico, in Central America, in South America, as it is here. But guess what? We all live in America. You might not be from here, but this is the culture you live in. This is the, um, this is the water that you're swimming in right now. And the first thing is that we, as American Christians, for whatever reason, we've convinced ourselves that the Old Testament doesn't matter, right? And so you go to all these different verses about the Sabbath and practicing the Sabbath, and even the thing we read about Ezekiel, and you read about Sabbath and Nehemiah, and you read about Exodus, and you're like, yeah, but we're Christians, and I'm not under the law anymore, and therefore, the Old Testament doesn't really matter to me. But this is just, you know, th this could be an entire evening in of itself. But what, what we have to realize is that that notion, this separation between Old Testament, New Testament, this is the old Bible, here's the new one that we work with. That separation has zero findings or basing in scripture. The, the, the pages that inform Jesus who he is, the early Gospels, Luke and Matthew, when they tell the story of Jesus' childhood, they talk about him growing in wisdom and stature. And what does that mean? It means knowing, reading, repeating, memorizing the Old Testament. When Jesus announces who he is, how does he do it? The Old Testament. When Paul says to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking, I don't remember the rest of the verse, but all the things that he says, when Paul says all scripture, what does he mean? Well, the New Testament is not a thing yet. He means the Old Testament. The Old Testament is useful for all these things, Timothy. Timothy, as you are in Ephesus and you are establishing churches and deacons and elders and, and you're trying to, it's the Old Testament. It's this story that's supposed to be useful for teaching and preaching and rebuking. The, the idea that the stories that shaped Paul and Peter and James and John and Jesus himself somehow don't need to shape us is really weird. And the idea that, oh, well, that's something that's only in two thirds of my Bible and I only really care about the last third. That's just weird. It's just weird. And we can have a separate conversation about it because I know that that's weird. It's not a very strong point, but we're just going to move on. But the second thing that, I, that I've noticed um, here in the American church, and I'm a part of the American church, and this is maybe more subtle, um, but I think possibly more harmful, is what I mentioned earlier, that we've convinced ourselves of this idea that unless something is a second person indicative, like unless it's a command to you, unless it is, Jessica, get up and do this, right, then, then somehow it doesn't mean anything to me. Right? If it's just if it's if it's not this direct command into my life, then therefore it has no place to shape my thoughts and feelings, my heart, my mind, and the way I live. But the thing is, is none of us actually live that way. I guarantee that not one person on this Zoom, not one person in my life who calls himself a believer, actually lives according to that weird construct that I only really care about the commands. Because if you only cared about the commands, then according to the Bible, you can own slaves. Then according to the Bible, you can treat women as property. 
then according to the Bible, you can have more than one wife because the Bible never condemns polygamy. Then according to the Bible, there is no reason you cannot get an abortion because the Bible does not explicitly condemn abortions. But none of us live that way. None of us think those things. All of us realize that what you do, the way that we form our Christian ethics as believers is we take the entirety of scripture and we say that because of this truth and this truth and this truth, therefore, this is how I live. We go back. I'll just talk about abortion because I don't know. It's not like a sensitive topic or anything. But we go back to Genesis 1, chapter, 20, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We say, all, all human beings are created in God's image, according to his image and according to his likeness. That's what we say. And we say, we go to the passage in Jeremiah, a prophet. We go to Jeremiah and we say that God knit every single child together in, the, in, his, in his mother's womb. Right? So there are these arguments. There are these these uh, approaches to scripture where we are perfectly comfortable using the entirety of scripture to say, you know what? I, and I don't know really where everyone's at on this, but me personally, you know what? I don't think we should kill babies in the womb. And I understand that there's nothing in the New Testament that explicitly says I should not abort a child, but I don't think we should. And you know what? I understand that there's nothing in the New Testament that says that women are not property. I understand that. But based on the Imago Dei, based on women's roles within the, with, within the entire scope of the Bible, based on the way that women are elevated in Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of Luke, based on the way that Paul uses women in his ministry, I am 100% convinced that women are image bearers equal with man. But you know what? That's the entire Bible. And so this, this idea, this, this retort to Sabbath, to say that you know what, um, it's not commanded in the New Testament, therefore I'm not going to do it. I'm just telling you, none of, none of us live that way. Nobody lives that way. I, I, I have yet to meet one person who really lives according to only what's commanded in the New Testament. And if, and if you are willing to do that with abortion, if you are willing to do that with you know, women's rights, if you're willing to do that with race and, and ethnic conversations here in the United States, if you're willing to talk about slavery and condemn it because of the Bible, then, then Sabbath should be right in there with that conversation as something that you actually care about. And I'm not saying that y'all don't. I'm just saying that most people that I have this conversation with, this is the first thing that comes back. First thing is, yeah, I know Ernesto, but you know, it's not really commanded in the New Testament. So I don't know. I don't know. That seems, it seems like a lot of work. Um, you know, in preparing for this, um, I thought about going to the Gospels um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke when Jesus dies. All three of those Gospel writers purposefully mention that all of the disciples waited on the Sabbath before they buried Jesus. Even though their life is literally falling apart, their son, their brother, their Messiah was just murdered. He was murdered on a cross and their entire revolution is done. And they wait, they observe the Sabbath. I could have talked to you about how in the book of Acts, when Paul comes before the governor Felix, um, and the governor is kind of like, hey, man, this isn't how he sounds because it was a different language. But he says, hey, man, 
I don't know. These Christian, y'all Christian people, you're different than the Jewish people. I, this is, you're causing me problems. And I'd, I'd like you to just kind of go back to being Jewish. And Paul's response to Felix is, you know, Governor Felix, I believe in every word that's written in the law and the prophets. And Paul is trying to explain to Felix that this whole Christianity thing is a continuation of this Jewish thing that Felix is more familiar with. And what's in the law and the prophets? Sabbath. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. Every single book, every single story, something to do with this rhythm of rest and release and freedom. And the reason that I didn't want to just go into those particular verses or whatever and like really slam it in is because I was a Bible college teacher, right? I still am. I was an Old Testament professor who knew all the verses and it didn't do anything to me. I'll be honest. For a few years, five years, six years of my life, I taught this year after year after year. And I'd have students do culmination projects on the Sabbath in the Old Testament. And it just didn't hit. It just didn't hit. And I think that for me, it was because I was, even though I've been through all this training, I was still stuck in this mentality that what really was meant to shape my thoughts and minds and my heart was what we find in the commands of the New Testament. I like what was mentioned in the um, sermon last week that y'all listened to. And I'll kind of contextualize it for myself. If I, as a Bible college professor at Eternity Bible College or a leader here at Living Stones Church, if I violated any of the Ten Commandments, any nine of the Ten Commandments, if I was cheating on my wife, if I was stealing stuff, if I was being openly um, abusive to my elderly parents, if I was talking crap about people all the time, I can almost guarantee you that some of those I'd be fired for at Eternity, at the school that I work at, and some of those I would definitely get talked to and confronted about, like, hey, Ernesto, it seems like you're, I can't remember, what's English, she's mad, what is that, somebody? Gossip, that, that it seems like you're a gossip, right? That you're just constantly gossiping about people. You're, ta you're talking trash about people behind their back. But I can almost guarantee you that even at Eternity Bible College, even here in this church and probably in NoHo Church, if you violate Sabbath, you will be thanked. I will be thanked for putting a lot of work in. Hey, thanks for going the extra mile. Hey, I really appreciate how hard you've been working lately. Hey, Ernesto, let's talk about paying you some more money because we ain't pay you crap or whatever it is, right? And it's just strange that in our cultural context within the United States that is so based on efficiency and work and money and how much can you get done. And there's so many studies that we could have talked about about like the amount of output required by individuals today within American corporate world is, is unattainable for the average person to do in 40 hours. Most of your jobs you cannot actually do in 40 hours. Sorry. Even though your boss says, hey, you're worth 40 hours, you cannot do it. And it's not necessarily your boss's fault, but you have to ask the question like, man, if my boss wanted me to cheat on my wife as part of my job, or if my boss wanted me to consistently lie, or my boss wanted me to 
kill somebody as a part of my job, fill in the blank with one of those 10 commandments that you think works best. There's no way we wouldn't have a conversation. We wouldn't be thinking about, man, should I, should I kill someone because I really like this job? You wouldn't do that. I mean, I don't know any, all of you, but I don't think most of you would do that. But your job asks you to violate Sabbath, to overwork yourself, to not reflect God's image in this way. And you're like, yes, of course. What else can I do for you? And that, I don't know. It ruined my life. So hopefully it doesn't ruin yours. Um, I, sh I shouldn't say ruined. It, it took everything, just stopped it, honestly. I lost a lot of friends lost work, lost a lot of things because I allowed myself to just consistently violate and profane the Sabbath. Now, the second thing, um, the second thing that I want to talk about, this one's a lot shorter, trust me, because I don't remember what time it's supposed to be done. Eight minutes, right? Perfect. Um, is that, and, and this is something that would be really fun for y'all to look at at another time. Um, but this concept that the Sabbath is a communal practice. It is a group practice. Um, something that I'm sure that you've heard from Jared or Javon or another teacher here at NoHo is that when we read the Bible, we have to realize that ancient Near Eastern culture and Greco-Roman culture are dyadic, collectivistic. They are group think in the way that they think. They never hear things as this is what it means for me they hear everything as this is what it means for us, right? Exile is never about an individual like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get exiled. No, it's always about the nation is going to be exiled. Um, and, you know, yeah, there's, there's other conversations we could have about like, well, what does that mean for those who technically didn't deserve exile? But that's not what we're talking about right now. What we're talking about is this idea that in the Bible for the, the readers, the authors, and the audience of the Old Testament and the New Testament, when they hear things, when laws are given throughout the book of Numbers and the Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that these are laws that are to be practiced in a group with people. Jesus does the same thing, Sermon on the Mount, the one another's. How can you one another yourself? You've probably heard something like that before. You cannot practice the Beatitudes on your own. It requires a group of people to do it together. And a lot of scholars will talk about how the culmination moment or the, the apex of Sabbath within the Hebrew Bible is something found at the very end of the book of Leviticus, and it's called the year of Jubilee. And it would be kind of boring to read the whole thing, um, so we won't do that. But the basic concept of the year of Jubilee is that within Israel, every seven days, so on Saturday, from Saturday midday to Sunday the next day midday, Every seven days, you rest, you don't work, you enjoy the fruit of your labor, you have a good meal with your family, you talk with your neighbor, you, you don't walk too far, because like walking far is hard, especially when you don't have a car, there's no bus, there's no Uber, nothing like that. You just hang out right where you are every seven days. And every seven years, um, any, any, anybody who's kind of like lent you money or that you've lent them money, debts are forgiven. Right, And every seven years, there's kind of this minor reset that happens within the nation of Israel. And that's called the Sabbath year. And then every seven cycles of seven years, hear how the seven thing seems to be important. Um, so every 49 years, there's the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was a complete and total reset. If you think about it, 49 years is not a long time. 
right? Jared's basically what, 73 years old, something like that. Like he's been around almost two 49s. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't know how old you are. I just know you're older than me and that's all that matters in my jokes when you're on mute. So, um, but 49 years isn't a long time. And the whole idea of the year of Jubilee is that let's say that I screwed something up. I completely messed up in my business, in my life, with my wife, with my kids, whatever. And so I would go to my neighbor, Jeff, and I'd say, hey, Jeff, this is not working out well for me. Do you think I could borrow some of your land? Like my kids screwed up all our land. I don't know what he did. He lit it on fire. So can we use some of your land, Jeff? And Jeff, as a good Israelite brother, would say, yeah, of course, that's fine. Come on, use my land. Like, let's, you can cultivate your stuff right here. And it happened on a bigger level, too. So let's say that everyone in Noho Church is part of the tribe of Zebulun, and y'all mess up. You invest all your money into some Ponzi scheme that Jovi talked you into, and then you all lose all your money. Then you would come to the tribe of Benjamin, and you would say, hey, Benjamin, our bad. We listened to this dude named Javon. Don't worry, we stoned him and his family, but we lost all of our money. So can you give us this huge bridge loan, like a 50-year bridge loan? Also, can you send a bunch of crops and workers and things to cultivate our fields so that we don't die? And that is how all of Israel worked or was supposed to work within uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are what these laws are trying to do, is trying to create an equitable society for everyone. But now, let's pretend same scenario. The reason I screw everything up is because I'm a drunk and I'm an addict and I cheat on my wife and I, I'm lazy and I don't work and Jeff's a good guy. And so Jeff says, hey man, even though you're you know, throwing your life down the drain, I'm going to let you borrow some of my land. And then I don't get my life together and my kids grow up and their dad was a drunk alcoholic and all this other stuff and they kind of fall into alcoholism and we're just a screw up type of family. Well, guess what? Regardless of whether you think I deserve it or not, at that 49 years, Jeff gives everything back to me, 100%, complete reset. And the reason you do that, Jeff, the reason you do that is because the story that you're part of says that Yahweh owns this land to begin with. It's only been given to me to steward. And Yahweh wants me to care for my brother Ernesto and for the Duke clan or whatever it is. And so therefore... Yeah, there are no pre-existing terms. There are no, if you meet these requirements, then you just give it all back to me. And we're not a theocracy living in agricultural, ancient Near Eastern um, society. I understand that. But there are some of you in this church body right now who, because of the society that we live in, because of the economy that we live in, because of your employable skills, your education, whatever it might be, you literally cannot Sabbath. If you Sabbath, if you do not work one day of the week, if you only work one or one and a half jobs, you cannot make rent, you cannot afford to pay for your bills, your kids will be taken from you. I understand that that is a reality for a lot of people living in Los Angeles. But the thing is, is let's pretend that's Joby. I, it's not, so don't think that he's dying into poverty right now. But let's say that, it, that that is Jovan. The command to Sabbath, to practice these regular rhythms of rest in your life, is a command to y'all, to us. And so it is Jeff's responsibility. You guys are just right here. That's why I keep using you two. I'm sorry. I know that your screens look different. 
Um, it is Jeff's responsibility to help Joby rest. And it is, it is Jared's responsibility to make sure that the Moonies are resting. I see you, I don't see your face, but I see your names. Right, that it is our corporate responsibility as the covenant people of God within this framework that I'm proposing, which you can totally reject, that's fine. But within this idea that we are God's corporate people, if Sabbath matters to us, then it is our corporate responsibility to rest. And that does mean that some of you will be the Jeffs in the earlier situation. Some of you will get the worst end of the deal in that you will be the ones supporting Sabbath for another brother or sister or family. And no one's going to pay you back, right? This is just something that you do because all of the resources you have are not actually yours. They're God's. And this is God's design and care for his family and for his people. This is part of who he is as a being and as our creator from Genesis 1 and 2. And I can tell you that being on the giving end of that is super fun, all right? I mean, I'm, I'm dead serious, right? Like when you get to invite somebody else to Sabbath and to do it with them, to show them how to do it, to provide them money, the house, the babysitting, whatever you need, it's super, super fun because you get to experience something that maybe you've experienced for yourself, this idea of a rest, a day off, a weekend, a let me go to the beach for a couple of days, something that is rejuvenating and life-giving to you. But I've also, especially since we've been doing foster care the last year plus, um, and last night when we got two children uh, joined our home, I've been on the side of that where it's like, hey, without other people, I can't rest. I'm gonna be real honest. Um, two kids in my home, one of them is having some issues. And then I got two other kids that Renee and I made. And if I'm being completely honest, unless someone else steps up, unless you make my dinner, unless you watch all my kids, my wife and I will not talk. And there's some people are going to come back to me. And I've had people say this to me before. Hey, man, you need to make more responsible decisions in your life. And you should have thought about this before you let those kids be there. I'd be like, yeah, maybe, but they're here now. So what are we going to do? That's not a good answer, but I have said that before. What I would really say to someone who was in my community was, why don't we want to Sabbath together? And maybe this is just a season for Renee and I. I mean, we got young kids, man, like, and it's not easy. Um, but we will have older kids. Hopefully, that's the goal, right? Your kid's supposed to grow up and you're not supposed to do anything wrong. So hopefully we do have older kids and there will be a season in our life where we can provide that for other people. But it is very, very hard. And I don't, the, the benefit here is I don't know which one, which one of these categories y'all fall into. I don't know if you're the one that is supposed to help other people Sabbath or if you're the one that needs to say, hey, I want to Sabbath. I need to Sabbath. I need to actually rest in order to reflect my creator God's design and character for humankind. But I can't do it. We live in Los Angeles. I've got X amount of kids. I've got this going on. I cannot do it. And it's possible that those are bad excuses. You need to rearrange your life. But it's also possible that you're one of those families within those 49 period where the patriarch of your family really messed things up. And here you are, and you're just trying to pull it together, trying to care for your mom, trying to care for all these different people. And, and you cannot do it without Jeff saying, hey, 
Don't worry about it. We're good. Jubilee. This isn't, this isn't mine. This isn't yours. This is Yahweh's Jubilee. We're good. Um, my favorite story of this happening in the Old Testament is the book of Ruth. Uh, if you, I'm not going to tell the whole book, and we're not going to read it either. But in Ruth chapter 4, there's this weird story between Boaz and this unnamed guy who's supposed to redeem Ruth. And what's happening in that story is, is Sabbath. It is Naomi and Ruth have a humongous debt and a huge asset that needs to be worked. They have land, they have people, they have babies on the way and livestock. And what Naomi and Ruth are asking of Boaz is, hey, I've got a, a ton of debt and my husband made a really bad decision by leaving and going to Moab. And my sons married Moabite women. And so all I got is this Moabite woman. And here I am. But hey, Boaz, would you redeem us? And Boaz's answer is, yes, I would love to be that redeemer, that kinsman redeemer, that patron. I would love to help you and your family have rest, release, peace. But in chapter four, there's a story between Boaz and the unnamed guy. And what Boaz is doing there is he recognizes that this is such an honor. Within God's economy, where this is all God's stuff, this is an honor to, to redeem someone. It is an honor to take on someone's debt. It is an honor within God's economy to use your money so that someone else can Sabbath. And Boaz says, like, hey, man, young buck, come here. I want to – look, you're actually up. It's your opportunity. You can do this. You can redeem this girl. You could take on all her debt. You can have her babies. You can, like, and it, it seems like, you know, from – honestly, the American in the story, the wise American business decision in the story is what the unnamed man does. He says, it's actually not going to be good for me and my family. Um, it's going to kind of hurt my son's inheritance. I think it's the most wise and financially – responsible decision to not marry Ruth. And so Boaz is like, man, you're an idiot, whatever, whatever, man. If you don't, if you don't want to do it, I'm going to marry her. You don't understand how much of an honor it is to help this family rest. And then from Boaz comes King David. And then from King David and from Ruth comes Jesus, right? Like this, this story of of individuals and families and clans within Israel who recognize that Yahweh is king. This is all Yahweh's stuff. This is all Yahweh's resources. And that part of what it means to be a representative of Yahweh is to rest, to rest well, and to rest with the covenant people of God.